Podcast. Let's talk about the weather. Hi there. Welcome to our podcast. Let's talk about the weather. Today we have Aaron Kennedy, who is a meteorologist from North Dakota, and he will tell us something about silometer use in his field and his disciplines. Um, as second person, we have Brad Gay from Alt uh, Hydromet. He's a meteorologist and a sales engineer for the United Kingdom. Hi, Aaron, and hi, Brad. Oh, hello, how's it going? Hey, Martin, how are you? I'm fine. I hope you too. And uh, I'm pleased to welcome you in this episode. I want to t uh, talk about silometers and their use beyond the typical field, which is the cloud detection. As an introduction, Brad, I would like to have just a brief description of what silometers are and what they are typically used for. And in this episode, I would like to take a look beyond that, because silometers are uh, of high potential for various kinds of disciplines. Okay, Brad, so just uh, you could start. Sure. So a silometer is basically a device that uses a laser or any other type of uh, light source to determine a uh, height of a cloud ceiling or a cloud base or to measure aerosol concentration or to measure precipitation. So it's um, a variation of a device called an atmospheric LIDAR, LIDAR standing for light detection and, ra and ranging. And those are devices which send basically short laser pulses up into the atmosphere and then measure what comes back, what gets scattered back. And then from that backscatter signal, you can determine, say, how high up your cloud base is or where there's maybe a bit of aerosol in the atmosphere or type of precipitation that's that's falling downward so they're um, yeah they're pretty versatile multi-use devices that are used for a lot of applications in meteorology whether it's air quality or, or aviation for example so what are aviation experts using them for so it's pretty important for um, for pilots for example uh, to be able to understand where the cloud base is and and where you might have, say, a visibility impact as you're as you're taking off in a plane. Um, also, for example, if there's precipitation falling. Um, so, yeah, it's important for aviation safety to to have data from silometers. In this year, especially in this year, we saw silometers uh, um, in an important role when uh, when it came to the wildfires, which uh, were. Um, Yeah, present at uh, nearly all continents this year in an extraordinary amount. Um, Aaron Kennedy, who is from the University of North Dakota, is working on atmospheric um, sciences. And he told us, and he sent us some reports uh, from um, wildfire signals that originated from fires that come hundreds of miles away from the West Coast. Aaron, could you describe what you saw then? Yeah, so I just so everyone knows, I live in North Dakota. So basically, the center part. Actually, we argue over what's the geographical center of the uh, continent of North America, and we're right near that. So we're in the middle of the country. It's prairie, not a lot going on here other than agriculture, and there's some oil field work. But the thankfully, we only have a few grass fires around here, and most of the the fires that we see come from other locations, and. Uh, Historically, 
we've seen we had a senior do a project on this they're from california they're interested in fires and right now you know in the past decade or somewhere around two to three weeks a year we have snow a uh, smoke overhead during the summer from wildfires and these could be coming from california so upwards of like thousands of miles away to uh british columbia uh areas of uh, western canada ontario manitoba basically places with forests that we don't have and we've had a, a salometer deployed at our institution for the past year. Uh, we use it for other purposes, but uh, we have other faculty in our department that are interested in aerosols and the pollution that are formed by various sources, including wildfires. And uh, we knew that the smoke plume was, was coming our way from satellite imagery. And so checked out the salometer uh, data and sure enough there there's the smoke plume and it was it was pretty stark contrast between like the background signal you'd have from the instrument and, and where this the smoke was is your impression that silometers are used now in more fields than maybe some years ago that other disciplines are um, finding their use for silometers they're actually underused like we so because of the aviation applications There are networks of salometers in the United States and any country that has airports. Pretty much any major airport has a set of instrumentation that includes a salometer. And in the current state, most of these stations, they just report the cloud heights. And the really fun data, in my opinion, the, the backscatter data, which is like the radiation that that instrument receives, ends up going bye-bye. And so there's been work in our country uh, from the, the folks with, that are involved with the National Weather Service to show that, hey, we can use these salometers for other purposes. Now that our communications have become a lot better, there's not like data bottlenecks for transferring that data to places. Uh, my group, of course, we use it for looking at things during the wintertime, like blowing snow. Uh, but even just the detection you know, like of smoke from wildfires is, is an important uh, source of data that we can use for things like model evaluation. So I would like to come back to the blowing snow later, but for the moment, um, what is so important about seeing the wildfire clouds and the smoke clouds coming from the wildfires? Um, yeah, so it, it depends where you live. So, so we happen to be far enough away from most of these fires that it's more of a human interest type of story. The public's looking up in the sky and like, why? Why does it look hazy? Why does it look like we're on another planet or something? Because that wildfire smoke, it tends to uh, reduce the amount of sunlight in certain wavelengths, like the cooler colors. And so when you get the wildfire smoke, especially near sunset, you get a much more like red sky. And I, I can remember one case a few years ago where it looked like we were living on Mars. You see the images from the... the uh, rovers and probes on mars and it's like that's what it looked like outside and of course the general public at that point's like hmm what the heck is going on they don't necessarily know that there's wildfires occurring this year perhaps they did but in other years not necessarily uh but then if you're closer to the fire or you're in situations where the atmospheric conditions are right that smoke can mix downward and get into the lowest level of the atmosphere that we call the boundary layer And in that situation, once that smoke reaches the boundary layer, then it starts having public health impacts. And so you can smell the smoke, 
you, you go outside, it's like, hey, who's camping? Where's the campfire? Nope, mm-hmm. that's you know trees that burned up hundreds, thousands of miles away. Uh, but then it also it's a you know, it has impacts on our lungs, and so it increases the amount of pollution in the boundary layer. And if you're elderly or you have asthma or some pre-existing conditions for your respiratory system, it can pose problems. Okay, so if I understood you right, it's uh, to see the smoke doesn't mean that it's also harming. It needs to come uh, under a certain level, below the level of the boundary layer that you said. Yeah, exactly. So and in our situation where we're in the, the middle part of the country, in most situations, we see the smoke pass overhead and it's on the order of like kilometers up in the sky. Mm-hmm. Um but even this past summer, occasionally the atmospheric conditions are right where this pollution will mix its way down to the surface and then it does have an impact on us. And in other situations, I remember it was either last year or the year before, we had wildfires in central Canada, so like Ontario, province of Ontario, and uh, eastern Manitoba. In that situation, the smoke got pushed by the low-level winds and then sure enough you know we had uh, significant air quality problems because of it so do you think that kilometers can take um, a part in i won't won't say uh, saving the population but maybe uh, warning them in an early state well so so they have a role uh the salometer can help verify just how much smoke is there uh, for the purposes of like warning the public, a lot of times we're reliant on things like satellite meteorology, or if you're really close to the fire, even radars can pick the stuff up. But where the salometers come in, I think, is for improving our forecast in the future. And so we've we've started to see in the past couple years that smoke parameterizations, as we call them, are being included into our weather models. And so what they do is they basically simulate an emission source in the model like a fire or dust or whatever and then it simulates where that smoke goes in the atmosphere and that does that does provide you output that can provide evidence of what could happen to your air quality and so where the salometers come in is it provides us a point measurement that says okay here's where the smoke actually is here's how high it is and in many cases how deep it is and if we've got a network of these across the country, then you could conceivably use these to do evaluations for these parameterizations all over the place. Brad, you have a sales engineer for, for uh, Alt Hydromet at UK, so you're selling our instruments to, to customers. I wanted to know if this is something that you observe too, that a lot of people or maybe scientists especially are um, getting into the silometer use uh, in a different way that when we originally intended. Yeah, I think it's, it's the use of silometers is um, they're being increasingly used for air quality research. And yeah, like, uh, like Aaron says, for observing smoke plumes, for example, um, yeah, we even saw the example after the California fires where we had a couple of kilometers here in the UK on the West Coast in Wales, uh, observing some of that, some of the smoke plume, even making it uh, all the way across the Atlantic. So that goes back to what Aaron was saying about uh, the more data we have, the better we can 
we can make our models. Um, but even, yeah, for, for kind of local studies of air quality, maybe say aerosols from industry or from, from factories uh, are certainly worthy of study. So I think that a lot of universities and, and research organizations are looking into some of the better ways that we can use all this data that's coming out of seolometers rather than kind of just reserving them for, for cloud heights and aviation purposes. And of course, a big part of that is the cost effectiveness of the instrument. Uh, typically, anytime remote sensing is involved, whether it's LIDAR, radar, uh, cha-ching, <laughs> you start racking up the budget quick. And solometers are probably by far the cheapest LIDAR or radar type system that are they're available. So what kind of disciplines are typically using them and for what applications? We mentioned some of them. Ariel, you're using it for another one. So before we come to the blow snow uh, measurement, uh, what kinds of applications could you think of? So in general, like, like Brad mentioned, the air quality is a big one. Uh, determining the structure of the boundary layer. So one of the nice things about solometers is you can resolve properties of the boundary layer, which is like that lowest kilometer of the atmosphere. But you can also see you know, up to about 15 kilometers with them. And so it's giving you information about the low and mid-levels of the atmosphere. And so we've seen some work with determining the height of the boundary layer over time. And that also has ramp for forecasting and air quality for that matter. Uh, and then, of course, in the there's a, a program called the Atmospheric Radi Radiation Measurement Program, ARM, and they use them for providing detail on, on the cloud basis. And so we know that cloud bases are important for aviation because that determines your ceiling, but determining where clouds are is also really important for climate applications. And basically, if we're trying to model the climate, one of the biggest sources of uncertainty right now are aerosols, so the pollution from things like wildfire smoke, but also clouds. And when it comes to determining whether our climate models are getting the right simulation, we have to evaluate the clouds in those models. And so the solometer is one of those instruments that goes into forming those best estimates for the height of our, our cloud layers. So Aaron, you're measuring the, uh, how the blow snow falls and how it behaves in the air. Uh, could you say us something about this and your application? Yeah, so my specific application is looking at wintertime use of the, the solometer. And so a, people probably heard of the term blizzard before, but basically a situation where you can't see anything because there's so much snow. But what people may not know is while we do get those type of events where it's both snowing a lot and it's blowing around and that's a blizzard, we also get situations where we have what's called a ground blizzard. And this is where snow that has, previous fall, has previously fallen has lifted back off the surface and causes the same problems. And so for my neck of the woods, we're basically the blizzard capital of, of the United States. Uh, we get a lot of these ground blizzard events, basically cold fronts out of Canada, push through our area, and then you lift that snow back off the ground and it poses problems. Uh, but in high latitude parts of the globe, so Antarctica or the like, above the Arctic Circle, 
blowing snow in that manner is, is really common because they don't get much snow, but the snow they do get is very dry and it blows around really easily. And of course, that mm-hmm. poses problems for any scientists or anyone else that's working in those areas. And maybe for some of our European listeners, I can just jump in with a little bit of the context on some of the impacts of these blowing snow events, because it's not really something we have a ton of uh, here on the European continent sides, maybe in parts of Scandinavia. But these, yeah, these blowing snow events, these ground blizzards um, can be pretty debilitating for travel or even just for orienting yourself when you're out trying to walk around or, or navigate during one of them. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really low visibility. So if you visit the part of the country where uh, where Aaron lives, you'll even see on on the highways there that there are gates that can be put across to to shut the road to travel when uh, you have these extreme conditions. So yeah, better forecasting of them is is pretty important for ensuring people can travel safely. Yeah, I think of like our area kind of being like the anti-Europe in terms of like land cover and topography because I can I can drive an hour and there's no elevation change. And there's basically no trees. The only trees we have are shelter belts, which are basically strips of trees that farmers planted to reduce the amount of erosion due to wind after the Dust Bowl back in the 1930s. Uh, So it's a very, uh, I'll call it boring landscape. It's an important landscape because it's a very productive region of of our country for, for crops. But it's ideally suited for blowing snow around because there's no trees or buildings to stop the wind. The interesting thing I I took now from your conversation was that ground blizzards can occur even on a sunny day. Yeah, and so that's I have other parts of my research where we look at how we can detect this phenomenon from satellite and uh, you'll get situations where the storm system has passed through the area and as a result, we end up with sinking motion in the atmosphere uh, above us. And that tends to inhibit cloud cover. And even though you've got that sinking motion and lack of cloud cover at the surface, you still have strong winds. And so you'll see these areas on the satellite where uh, the, the snow is blowing around and it's it's having impacts on on the community. And that's actually a big problem because... You have situations where there's a lot of spatial variability in the, the phenomena, or if you're in town, it doesn't look bad because the the buildings and the trees in town slow the wind down. You look outside, it's like, hey, it's blue sky. Let's go drive to grandma's house. And then you leave town and you drive into one of these plumes of blowing snow, and now you're in trouble and you can't see anything. And it drifts over the road. I mean, some of these drifts after these ground blizzards can be meters high, basically preventing all travel until the snow plows come through. Yeah, and that's um, especially at night. It can be can be pretty dangerous uh, to get caught out in a blowing snow event. So, although it's uh, the weather report says that it will be a nice uh, day without precipitation, you can get into a blizzard, which is very can be very. Um, dangerous, as we said. Um, I have a question regarding um, the difference between falling snow and blowing snow. Can you measure that? Can you say w- which kind of snow is falling down from the sky and which is uh, pulled up from the ground? That is a great question, and that's actually probably one of the most difficult questions we have right now. Uh, it's it, it comes down to using a variety of different instruments to try and figure that out. You know, the salometer, it's giving just backscatter. 
just basically the power returned. And so there's nothing in there that will specifically tell you whether it's blowing snow or falling snow. It's up to the human to identify the scenario that you're looking at and then say, okay, I think this, this peak is due to blowing snow. Maybe this one's falling snow. And the reality is, is we have events where they occur at the same time. And so in that situation, once you get the precipitating particles, that's where the salometer loses its, its functionality. It's, it's designed for detecting cloud base or precipitation or whatnot. And so once you start entering that, the falling snow layer, uh, you lose the signal. And then the question is, is that signal reduction due to the blowing snow or is it due to falling snow? And you can't answer that unless you have other instrumentation. And so what we've done uh, at other sites is we incorporate radar data or even other more expensive LIDAR data. And that will fill in areas above where the salometer is detecting it. And there's actually some cool tricks we can do with radar and LIDAR data combined. Uh, for example, LIDAR is sensitive to the second moment of the distribution. It sounds fancy, but basically it's, it's uh, the backscatter is a function of the size of the particles, uh, the area. And as you get to the radar uh, measurements, those are sensitive to the diameter of the particle to the sixth power. And so if we take the ratio of those measurements, we basically divide one by the other, we actually get a, a, a proxy for the particle size. And so we've got some work that we're getting ready to publish right now that demonstrates that if you have co-located uh, LIDAR and radar measurements, you can actually identify some properties about the size of the particles in that layer. That's important because blowing snow is essentially shattered snow crystals. And so when that snow falls on the ground and the wind starts blowing it, before they get suspended back in the atmosphere, they bounce around a lot. And when those particles bounce around on the surface, they shatter, they break into smaller pieces. And so the blowing snow distributions always have smaller particle sizes than the falling snow. That and so, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And so we have, so really the only way to truly know what's happening at the surface is we, we can't use remote, I mean, hopefully we can use remote sensing instruments in the future, but we have to have that ground truth. And so we need to have instruments that will actually tell us the particle size distribution of what's happening. And it turns out that that's also extremely challenging and can be a very expensive endeavor to do because it's, everything's blowing by really fast. And so you have to have... Uh, either really fancy instrumentation. People, for example, have taken probes off of research aircraft and, and redeployed them at the surface. Uh, or you have to have some sort of camera system that can basically freeze, if you will, those particles in flight as they're going by so they can size them. Or you could use a laser to do that. And so we have, there's the... Uh, since this is a hydromet, you have the Parseval instrument that can give you some information about what's happening at the surface. Uh, but then other parts of my research is I've, I've built a camera system to do this for me. Okay, Brad, you, um, Aaron mentioned the Parseval and radar systems. Um, what are typical setups um, a silometer could be used within? Sure. So to give our, yeah, to give our listeners a little bit of background on the Parseval, 
the Parzival is a, what's called a laser distrometer. So it's essentially, yeah, two kind of sensor heads on the device. Um, and as different particles, um, pieces of precipitation, we call hydrometeors, fall, um, fall between those two sensor heads, then um, the Parzival detects the size distribution of, of those different uh, of the precipitation to identify what type of precipitation is falling, whether it's rain or snow or freezing rain or sleet, et cetera. So, yeah, to be able to get that particle size and then correlate it with data, say, from a radar or from a cilometer can provide some interesting research opportunities and enhance the data that you're getting out of all the devices. It's that getting that full picture of what's happening from multiple different instruments provides uh, a much more robust picture and a robust understanding of what's actually happening with the weather. Yeah, I think the, the traditional use would be, so the Parcival is really designed for rainfall. And we've gotten some really, we have a Parcival here and we've gotten some really great measurements of intense rainfall events. And uh, what the parcel can do for the salometer data is let you know, hey, there's precipitation occurring, so you better watch out when using the salometer data. Because if you have precipitation occurring, then you're probably attenuating that salometer signal at some height above the surface. The more experimental use of the parcel is for, for wintertime. And there's all sorts of interesting things we've discovered about that instrument for like blowing snow and falling snow. I see we could talk... Um further for hours but unfortunately our time is over so Aaron I want to thank you very much for uh, participating in this uh, in today's episode and Brad um, I think we will continue this discussion in the future maybe when winter is coming more about uh, recent um, precipitation events and how the snow is behaving um, is there anything we like to add at the end I think thanks for having me on the show and uh, it's been a been fun yeah, thanks, Martin. And thanks, Aaron. Great. So, hear you soon and goodbye. Let's talk about the weather.